Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. Have we misunderstood the teachings of Jesus? Often his message to the leaders and disciples was, you're getting this wrong. Somewhere along the way, you got confused, lost, way off track. Would he have the same assessment of us today? Every time we approach the scriptures, we must start and end with God rather than with people. When we see Jesus as the true hero and redeemer in the commands and story of the Bible, our relationship with God, with others, and every other aspect of our lives is rightly formed and understood. In his new book, Reading the Bible, Missing the Gospel, pastor and author Ben Connolly reveals shockingly common ways we misread and misinterpret the Bible. He invites us to see the Bible's themes and teachings through a new lens, or rather, God's intended lens, on topics like confession and forgiveness, what it means to be blessed or happy, and the role of church in a believer's faith. Using theology, humor, and practical examples, this book invites readers to discover a gospel-infused lens that corrects common misunderstandings and helps us recover God's original message in the Bible. And here to talk about this book, Reading the Bible, Missing the Gospel, is Ben Connolly. He's a pastor, author, equipper, occasionally a professor. He serves at equipping at the equipping group and helps to lead the Salt and Light community and plant Fort Worth in Fort Worth, Texas. He's written numerous books, including this one. Ben, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. That all sounds very like high bar and formal. So <laughs> especially for a guy in a hoodie, in a cap. <laughs> Don't give away the video secrets. Oh, that's right. Sorry. Our audio audience doesn't know that I record this in my pajamas. But You're in your tuxedo today, of course. I forgot. Well, even if I'm on the seminary campus, because a great number of these are recorded at the in the Spurgeon Library studio and uh, with the semester over, I think the last one I recorded, I was in shorts and a polo. And <laughs> it's not exactly uh, seminary attire, but that's good. And I was just going in to record. So there sure. you go. Yeah, man. I, the first thing I got to say is Moody did a good job with the presentation of this book. It's multicolored inside. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's a nice looking book, brother. I agree. My two favorite parts of it are the design. They, they, they did beautiful graphics and charts and that kind of stuff. My second favorite part, though, is the Ford, because, man, it is <laughs> an amazing Ford. The forward is amazing. Maybe worth the price of purchase. For exactly. The if you're listening, Jared C. Wilson wrote the Ford. So it is appropriate that we acknowledge that. Well, I was happy to do so. And I'm looking forward to talking about some of the reasons, you know, some of the things in the book that really intrigued me and sort of prompted me to want to, you know, kind of lend my name to help out with it. The premise of the book is essentially this. A lot of evangelicals or a lot of Christians have misread the Bible, or we have, I guess, a broken lens or a distorted lens that through which we read the Bible. Talk to us a little bit about that. What's the broken lens or what's the distortion and why do you think that is? Like, yeah, why are the glasses broken? So sure. Yeah. So if we can go back to even, you know, Jesus's own life and as he walked around and taught and corrected and, you know, he met lots of different people in their various elements of brokenness and understanding and misunderstanding and this kind of stuff. But the harshest rebuke that Jesus had was often for the religious leaders 
And one of them that has just always stood out to me for the last, I've been in pastoral ministry for 23 years at this point, I think. And so during that time, one of the things that Jesus said to the religious leaders that has just really been ingrained in my mind is in John chapter five, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's the scriptures that bear witness about me, but you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And man, like we have such easy access compared to a lot of history to the Bible and to Bible study tools and to all sorts of different translations. And you can find a blog on whatever, you know, interpretation of any single verse you want to justify your position. And and it's just made me wonder though, over the years, do we put more hope, this is going to sound borderline heresy here, do we put more hope in the Bible than Jesus would have us put in the Bible? Do we stop short of the God that the Bible is telling us about that Do we stop short and miss like the view through the windshield (laughs) and instead stop at the Bible and do the same thing that Jesus said? Do we miss Jesus? Do we miss the good news of the gospel, even if we're the most learned Bible scholars? Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about basically is the difference between being sort of committed to religiosity versus being committed to Jesus. And so it's not about denigrating the Bible at all. It's about no. how you're using it or if you're sort of terminating your scripture reading on just becoming a more religious person or becoming sort of a you know religious performative mm-hmm. sort of person, a relationship with the idea of Jesus yeah. versus, yeah. versus Jesus himself. Yeah. yeah. And we even see that in some of the, you know, some of the traditional ways that, that we're taught to study the Bible. You know, what does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? And that's not a bad thing. It helps us personalize the Bible. But what it does is says, okay, well, all the power to then do anything with it is on me. And so the big lens, to your initial question, the broken lens to, to read the Bible through is one that makes it all about me. Uh, so the Bible exists for my knowledge so that I can know more or the Bible exists for my catharsis so I can feel better about myself or the Bible exists for my, you know, grab a verse to get me through the day or the Bible exists to give me rules that then I have to work by my power, by my ability to accomplish. And certainly there is knowledge in the scriptures. There is emotion in the scriptures. There are rules in the scriptures. So again, we're not swinging the pendulum so far away. But if everything about the Bible makes it all about me, then we've missed the entire concept of Christianity, for one, and missed part of why God gave us the Bible. Yeah, so that's what we're doing. I mean, that's the effect. Why is it that we sort of have that practice? Or why is it that our reading of the Bible is so truncated? Yeah. Yeah, I guess what's feeding that phenomenon? Yeah. It seems like, I mean, that's a huge question, probably one that like goes way back into history that we're just, you know, inheriting generation after generation from. And on some way, we've been taught not to read the Bible a ton in the kind of mass Christian world, at least in the West, although I don't think it's limited to the West. You know, I've both spent time in in other countries and it's there in in Australia, it's there in Europe, it's there in some both both pre and post Christendom worlds as well. Part of the issue is that the majority of people get their weekly diet of the Bible through a 30 to 45 minute teaching on Sunday. And so we, and I say we intentionally, I'm as much to blame as anyone, we as church leaders at least carry part of the blame of relieving folks of the necessity of reading the Bible because once a week I'll tell you everything you need to know about it. And of course that's not how we would say it. Of course that's not what we believe. But if in a way we serve as kind of the priest and mediator between God and his people, 
then the Sunday sermon becomes part of why our folks don't read the Bible. And then if our questions in our small groups are about what did Pastor Bob say in Sunday sermon, all due respect to all the Pastor Bobs out there, then we make it even more. We're asking folks to, to dissect our imperfect commentary rather than God's perfect word. And then I just think there's all the other things that have fed into it beyond that of We'll grab our we'll grab our one favorite verse. We'll go back to our one favorite book. We have it. We don't have a fully robust like Paul says in Acts twenty. Is it you know the full counsel of God? Which of course he's talking about the Hebrew scriptures there. And we have even more, but we don't have a full understanding. Nor do we teach our people a full understanding of the fully orbed holistic canon of scripture. Yeah, you know the premise of the lens, right? Reading the Bible, missing the gospel, seeing Christ as the center of all of the entirety of the scriptures. That wasn't a thing that, I mean, I grew up in church. It wasn't a thing that I grew up hearing. Yeah. You know, they, you know, I wouldn't say that the, you know, the, you know, Southern Baptist churches I grew up in were, you know, heretical Marcionites or anything, but the impression was that the Old Testament is about law. Mm -hmm. Then Jesus shows up and makes everything, you know, kind and gracious and, right. you know, God is mean in the Old Testament. He's kind in the New Testament. There's a functional disconnect between the two you know, covenants of scripture, but even just to read the scriptures with Christ as the center was really revolutionary Yeah, for me and kind of came out of my, you know, conversion, so to speak, to gospel centrality, Sure, discovering, you know, Jesus as the same. And it's still controversial. I mean, there's still people who will get upset if you say Jesus is the point of the Old Testament, you know, right. or that you should preach Christ from every Old Testament text. So in <laughs> in reading the Bible, missing the gospel, you talk about, you use the phrase, a gospel-centered gospel. What? <laughs> tell us what you mean by that. What's a gospel-centered gospel? Yeah, sure. And some of this stems from that same kind of, kind of tradition that, that a lot of us, and regardless of the denomination or network, a lot of kind of those of us in the West who follow Jesus fit within this kind of broad stereotype. And if, it is a stereotype, but there's a reason for stereotypes, as we all know. And saying a gospel-centered gospel, just try to recognize the reality that the gospel is, praise God for it, it is a past event. There is a historic moment that Christians believe Jesus lived, he died, he rose, he ascended. That's history past. And then for anyone who believes in Christ, it's also part of our, our personal history. There was a moment where he brought us out of darkness into light, moved us from death to life, this kind of stuff. And my eight-year-old son just got baptized this week. So we got to celebrate oh, awesome. these kind of things as a church. And, and we also believe that because of the gospel, I'm going to say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, it was a past event that greatly benefits my future. That there's a day when I get to go to heaven, there's something that something good happens to me because of what Jesus did. I don't have to burn in hell. You know, these kind of things that have frankly shaped evangelism over the last few decades. And again, both of those are true. We believe in both of those things. And they're really good news. But what's missing is the present implications of the gospel. And so similar to you, you said your kind of conversion to gospel centrality. For me, I, I was in my university years. I was a youth pastor for a couple of years before I think I actually knew Jesus, which is... Not ideal, but it is part of my story. <laughs> no, it's not but ideal. Not a good hiring move. I was young and stupid for accepting the job. But, you know, by God's grace, uh, he used ministry and teaching the Bible to middle schoolers and high schoolers to, to stir something in my own heart. So I'm grateful for it, even though it's a weird pattern, a weird set of steps. But walking across the university campus, part of my 
I think true salvation, best I can tell, was this realization that if Jesus is real, he should matter to all of life. And so a gospel-centered gospel says like, yeah, the past and future matters. But if we read Jesus's teachings and if we read the New Testament in light of the newly dead and resurrected and ascended Christ, they talked some about the future, mostly in mystery and, you know, imagery. But a lot of what the New Testament is, is going, okay, how does that death and resurrection change today? How does it change my sexuality? How does it change my view of the poor? How does it change my view of Jews and Gentile and socioeconomic and other people? And how does it change my posture toward my workers and my spouse and this kind of stuff? And, and some of what we can miss if we miss some of the original context, is how deeply the good news of Jesus seeped into every crack and crevice of, yes, future hope, yes, past assurance, but also every moment of my present life. I feel like that's part of what we miss. And that's the, yeah, thus the gospel-centered gospel, past, present, and future. Yeah. In some ways, what you're describing is the truncated or the the failure to kind of press the gospel into every corner of the room, so to speak, mm -hmm. results in a sort of shorthand that falls short of biblical language or the fullness of biblical language. So you kind of take aim chapter by chapter at these different mm -hmm. either cliches or <laughs> half-truths, right? Some of them sure. are truths, but they're not full truths. W one of them, of course, is the idea that we're not to judge, right? That we shouldn't judge others. Thou shalt not, I forget what the name of the chapter itself is, but it's basically taking on the idea that we're not to express judgment, right? Which is certainly not very popular today, except Absolutely. it is. We're not supposed to judge anybody, but we're very judgy. Yeah, it's a crazy we, don't anyone, world. we don't want anyone to judge us, but we want to judge exactly. everybody. <laughs> Only God can judge me, we say, as we live as, you know, in a way, as if he won't, but... That's so talk to us about that. So you come at the at that idea and your your premise is that no, we're actually are supposed to judge each other. Yeah. Ex explain yourself, brother. Why are you how are you not this, this <laughs> mental Pharisee? Sure. Yeah, that's right. I feel like you're judging me for saying we should judge others. <laughs> I definitely am. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it's the Trump card verse. Whenever somebody disagrees with us, as and we even quote it in the King James, right? Judge not lest lest yeah. thou shall be judged. Just the one verse anyone in the, right. knows in the original King James. But what we miss there is two verses later, Jesus actually says, you know, take the log out of your own eye so that you can remove the speck from your brother's eye, from your sibling's eye, spiritual sibling's eye. And so what Jesus is, he can't be doing unless he's contradicting himself in like two sentences later is saying, no, you can't judge anyone. Because he says, no, you are to take the speck out of your own eye what he's doing is essentially saying, hey, by what standard are we judging one another? Because like we've been only half joking about, because we get it, like we want to judge everybody. We don't want anyone to judge us. And so what Jesus does in his life is he, is he shows us the perfect standard, the full humanness, fully dependent on God, fully, you know, interacting with God as only, you know, Adam and Eve, <laughs> other than Jesus, experienced at all ever to some degree, but then not even that because he didn't just live a perfect life. He died for our inability to live a perfect life. And so Jesus's life, perfection is the standard by which we'll be judged. We don't get to judge each other based on our preferences or our opinions or this kind of stuff. Jesus gives us the example by which every human will be judged. But then the good news 
of course, is that he's not just the judge, he's the redeemer, he's the one who took the punishment for us. And so we are actually free both to admit that we're not perfect, which frankly, like a lot of us have a hard time admitting that. And we're also free then to enter into our brother or sister's imperfection as well, knowing they'll be judged by the same standard. But because they've been forgiven, we can enter into their brokenness, help them remove the speck out of their eye, all the while going, hey, if I have a log in my eye, I need to take that out first. And so Jesus is, if I can say it like this, and this is overly bifurcated perhaps, but Jesus's life shows us the standard by which we will be judged. So we don't get to be the final arbiter. But at the same time, Jesus's death and resurrection brings us into new life and into a new family. And then a lot of verses in the New Testament make a lot of sense of going, hey, Jared, you're strong in some areas that I'm weak. I need you to enter in and help me take the specks out of my own eye. And you need me to enter into your areas of weakness and lend my strength to you. And I think it's in the Corinthians, Paul says multiple times, judge one another, judge each other for sin, judge each other's inability or unwillingness to walk in God's standards. He even invites folks, hey, judge me. And so we can miss a lot of the way that Jesus frees us to judge each other, but in that lens, through that viewpoint, if we miss the beauty of what Jesus did in his life and death and resurrection. Yeah, in fact, he says it's outsiders that we leave the Lord to judge. Like, who are we to judge outsiders? But yeah. that, but we're to judge each other. <laughs> and man, um, don't we get that backwards. Today. We have that flipped, don't we? We are so happy to judge outsiders, quote unquote, those who don't follow Jesus. And we refuse to let anyone judge us, even though we call them sister and brother. Yeah, I call it uh, being shocked when lost people act like lost people. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly. I can't believe it. That lost person's acting lost. Right. Uh, okay, let's talk about the really controversial section, at least. Yeah. Not so controversial that I wasn't willing to lend my forward to the book, but the part that kind of raised my eyebrow, I think you're going to get the most sort of pushback if you haven't already. Uh, you make the claim, and I'm going to give you some space. I'm going to clear out, let you have the lane. You make the claim that we don't need to ask God for forgiveness, but don't keep asking God for forgiveness. Not that we don't need to, I guess, initially, or but we don't need to keep asking God for forgiveness. All right. Defend yourself, brother. <laughs> Judge me. Yeah. And if you'll give me a minute to, to get real nerdy, there are a few different kinds of forgiveness that the scriptures talk about. And so one is God's initial forgiveness. God, the offended party, absorbs the offense and frees us of our debt. That's one time forever. We believe that, we preach that, we celebrate that. It is right and good. The scriptures also talk about God's repeated forgiveness. And so someone who's walking with God continues to sin and God frees the offender's debt over and over again. That's what this chapter is focused on. There's also human forgiveness, where if I sin against my wife, which I do periodically, unfortunately, like it is right and good for me to ask her for forgiveness and for her to forgive me. So, so we're going to set that aside. Initial forgiveness, absolutely, is laced throughout both Old and New Testament. Human forgiveness, us forgiving each other all throughout. Here's the di distinction, though. Throughout the Old Testament, God's old covenant people, the symbolism, at least, of God's repeated forgiveness was, as we all know, the Levitical system, the sacrifice, the offerings of something that has to die in our place to absorb the debt. And so in the Old Testament, God's repeated forgiveness is commanded over and over again. When you sin, you offer a sacrifice. When you sin, you, if I can use a Catholic word, offer some form of penance and that kind of stuff. We've 
because of the way we read the Bible and forgetting somehow that Jesus's death and resurrection apply even to our relationship with forgiveness, a lot of us still live in that place where when I sin, when I realize something broken, I feel like I have to do something to earn God's forgiveness again. And so again, whether it's overt, like penance, or whether it's just the more subtle games we play in our mind, God, if you just do this, I promise I'll never do this again. If you'll forgive me. But it leads to a lot of fear. The thought of going to God and going, oh man, is this the one that pushed me too far? Was this the unforgivable sin? I had a student in my university ministry who was terrified of going to sleep because he tried to rehearse through his entire day every night before he went to sleep and list his litany of sins and ask God to forgive them. And here's what I want to submit is that when we do that, we miss the imagery, the fullness of the imagery that Jesus truly was our full and final sacrifice. And that there is no sacrifice needed. There is no penance. There is no working off of forgiveness. And in that light, we don't even have to ask God to forgive us yet again of something. Rather, and I think a lot of church traditions do this really well, we confess our sin. That's commanded in the New Testament, but that's different. Confessing our sin is going, God, yeah, I did mess up again. But confession isn't then followed up with a request forgiveness. For those of us who are in Christ, confession is met with what we call assurance. And assurance does not say, yeah, God just forgave you again. Assurance says, hey, even that one, that was already forgiven 2,000 years ago or eternity past. We don't know how time works. But Jesus's death was even, the one-time finished work was even good enough to forgive this. And so it's just trying to make a distinction between asking God for forgiveness over and over again versus coming to God and confessing our sin, but then trusting that his one time for all, as far as the East is from the West, death was sufficient for even this sin. So it, at our church, we have a, I'm just going to ask you a question. The, yeah, don't get nervous. We have a time of confession, as lots of churches do. Yeah. And it's typically will be in a scripture reading or it'll be some sort of corporate prayer, perhaps, or it's a responsive reading. And usually, so it involves some sort of corporate confession of sin. And then at the end, there's usually a request line that says something like, forgive and heal us, O Lord, which is a you know biblical phrase. Are you saying we shouldn't have that request line there? Are you saying that's unnecessary? I'm saying that there's a degree to which if we feel like we have to ask God in the moment to forgive us again, Yeah, that it actually minimizes the finished work of Jesus on the cross and, and truncates a little bit of our view of how beautiful what he did for us and how all-sufficient his death on the cross was. And so we say something similar in our church gatherings, but it's something along the lines of, God, we thank you for the forgiveness that we already received, and we stand in it bold before you and humbled by, by what you've done for us. And so it's a remembering back to what he's already done, which I think just to get, it makes his finished work all the more beautiful and all the more glorious to go, yeah, it really is. It really was one time every sin, past, present, and future I'll ever commit. It, it's that big. His death was that big that we don't need to ask forgiveness. Okay. Well, so I want to be clear for our <laughs> listeners. I'm agreeing with you on the premise in case somebody thinks that I, that I somehow believe that Christ's work wasn't once for all, right? Sure. To use the Hebrew phrase or that 
our justification is somehow incomplete or this we're on some kind of installment plan of salvation or we lose our salvation every time we commit a sin. I don't believe any of that. So I'm agreeing with your premise. I'm not sold on the practice. So I'm just going to ask you almost as a devil's advocate here, or I'm going to say as a Christian's advocate here, that's So you're already putting yourself on the high ground. <laughs> because I'm sure the li- some of our listeners will have these immediate questions, and you do address these in the book, I think, as, as well. Okay, the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. I just preached on this at our church this last weekend. One of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer is forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. How does that fit into your your premise that we don't need to ask for forgiveness if it's in yeah. the model prayer that Christ gives us? Yeah, what's interesting is, and by all means, like I, we, we say the Lord's Prayer and what we're not trying to do is, you know, dissect to the point of, our, you know, being arbitrary on this. It is interesting, though, and we at least have to, like, follow the storyline of the Bible as God's unfolding story and, unre- and unfolding revelation. That is the last point in the unfolding drama of Scripture that Christians are commanded, of Christians, followers of Jesus, God's people. That's the last point. The Lord's Prayer is the last point that we're commanded to ask forgiveness for our debts, for our sins. And so there is a degree to which, as we follow the unfolding nature of Scripture, the gospel writers were capturing Jesus's words, which, like all the rest of Scripture, do matter today. They are useful, Old Testament and New Testament, even though a lot of history changed at the cross the whole Old Testament, all the actions, temple sacrifice, all that kind of stuff matters for us today. We at least have to admit, though, that Jesus was instructing a pre-cross Jewish audience to seek forgiveness, which fits squarely into their tradition of offering sacrifice. What they didn't know, and what we do get to know now, is that the forgiveness that they sought, it would soon be superseded by Jesus's final sacrifice. And so there is part of it that is just a rehearsing of the gospel story that Jesus was giving to his original listeners before that gospel story was enacted in full. Okay, so the, did the prayer itself, it was only good for two and a half years or like, here's the model to pray, but only for another two and a half years? Is that kind of what you're saying or no? Yeah, I think it's at least worth asking in the same way that, you know, we talk about, you know, was Jesus's great commission given to just his original 12 or 20 or that kind of stuff. Like, we'll play the game on one side or, you know, John 17, you know, as the father sent me, I'm sending you. Is that a universal command or is that a command to his original followers? I think it's at least just worth asking the same question of a lot of what Jesus said. He did teach his disciples to pray this. There were also a a pre-Jewish audience who had not experienced the fullness of the death and resurrection. And it's at least intrigue. It has to be at least intriguing. And I would, I would encourage, you know, anyone listening to this to go do your own study on this. I fully could be wrong. Turns out it happens most days. I'm wrong on something. But zero times after the resurrection does any writer of scripture, which I would say is ultimately God, so would you, zero times after the resurrection are followers of Jesus commanded to ask God's con- continued forgiveness for our sins. Okay, let me ask you about, because I'm sure someone is uh, is thinking right now, First John 1, yeah. 9, and you do address this in the book as well. If yeah. we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You mm-hmm. would say that's just a reference to the initial saving yeah. faith? 
Yeah, for lack of a theological treatise at length answer, I think that First John 1, 9, I think this is supported by the adjacent verses on both sides. It's somewhat clear that it's written to someone who thinks they're a believer, who's not a believer. And so John is commanding them for the first time to, to receive God's initial forgiveness. Uh, gotcha. And if that's a foreign concept, then you've never lived in Texas because there's a lot of religious folks who think they're believers. Right. Um, and I think John would be exhorting those, you know, religious non-Christian people to confess our sins and receive his forgiveness, receive the application at least of his forgiveness for the first time. And there's a verse in James, a couple of verses in Hebrews that relate very much to, in the same way that James uses justification differently. And Martin Luther didn't like that. We all know that. James uses the imagery of forgiveness a little bit differently as well. And it seems like from all the study that I did for this chapter, because turns out this was the one that took the most time as you might <laughs> It seems like James uses the idea of forgiveness of more of a relational, you know, is our relationship broken with God? And that is certainly there. Like our closeness with God is affected by our sin in our confession. Yeah. I mean, he connects confession to healing and, right. and those yeah. sorts of things. Yeah. So I'm with you on, of course, with the idea that our forgiveness is settled, total. It's not in installments. It's not percentage. It's not like 60% loading, you know, but the false saving faith. I'm with you there. I'm with you in terms of when we pray and confess our sins, it's that we are claiming or we're, it's an attempt at resting in the forgiveness we already have. Yeah, probably just differ on the application. I think, yeah. you know, the rehearsal of the gospel in the asking for forgiveness, I think, can be valuable. So long as someone doesn't believe, as you said, I'm with you there, that they're somehow making penance or they're having to kind of right. yeah. twist God's arm for that sort of thing. Nor yeah, did for the record, let us continue to sin so that grace may increase. Like, that's not it. Like, we are called still to deal with our sin. It's just that I believe the gospel changes our view of forgiveness and we get to confess it to God and ask him to help turn our eyes back to him and be reminded of his already existing pardon. And my experience is that le leads us to a lot of rejoicing uh, and remembering rather than kind of fear or penance or that kind of stuff. Yeah. Let's move on to, we'll, we'll wrap up here. You're, I don't know, for some, this may be just as controversial. The idea of getting to go to heaven that, or going to heaven when we die, that's the sure. end goal or the end vision. You, you say, no, that's actually not the end goal of the Christian faith is going to heaven when we die. Yeah. Yeah. And some of that even goes back to tying like the present ramifications of the gospel to the hope we have in our future. That if the kind of commonly understood gospel is Jesus saved me, so one day I get to get out of here kind of thing. I'll fly away. Oh, glory. I'll fly away. Then there is just, we're kind of just in this like, ah, this life doesn't matter. This world doesn't matter. Um, it raises the question, like, why didn't Jesus just take us as soon as we're, you know, as soon as we're saved? Why did he save us from all this pain and hell on earth and all the kind of stuff? And the reality is that God talks about purifying the earth and all of creation groaning. One of the present implications of the gospel is that we're not the only beings in God's creation that exist in some degree of brokenness. All of creation is broken. And if you look at Eden, you know, God designed us humans initially for a perfect relationship with him. Yes, that's the one that gets talked about most often when we talk about our future hope. But he designed us for perfect relationships with one another and with the rest of his creation and all of creation for all of its differences was working together for his glory. And he gave us work to do as we cultivated and helped the garden and his creation thrive and flourish. 
And what's interesting, when you look at some of that imagery in Genesis 1 and 2, and then compare it with a lot of the imagery in Revelation 21 and 22, the image is, of course, a garden city. It's not exactly like Eden. I would submit it's something better than the Garden of Eden. But it's all of God's people existing on a renewed and redeemed earth, where heaven and earth, those dimensions, the spiritual and the physical, which are never meant to be separated, but we, in our minds, put one on one shelf and one on another shelf, where heaven and earth completely overlap again. And I guess a different way to say it would be that God's perfect and reconciled people will exist in God's perfect and reconciled creation in a true and better version of the brokenness that we exist in now. And, and again, like if we get that, that is God's story, then it changes our view of future and it changes our view of earth and changes our glimpses of, to go back to the Lord's Prayer, God's kingdom coming and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. That will happen one day in the future. And we as followers of Jesus, if we're carrying out the ministry of reconciliation and plenty of other verses, then we get to give glimpses of that now on earth as it is in heaven. You know, that's another, it's another thing that I never heard really Mm -hmm. in the churches I grew up in. Yeah, It was in our confession, you know, it was in the Baptist faith and message, the idea about even the resurrection to come. Yeah. But all of the forecast was about some sort of disembodied bliss in yeah. outer space, right? Right, you yeah, about a heaven. city. <laughs> yeah, right. Or, you know, if you're watching the Tom and Jerry cartoons, it's like you're wearing a diaper, playing a harp or something yeah. up in the clouds. Yeah, which doesn't sound like great yeah. news. If, like, no, it doesn't actually. <laughs> eternity, like, I'm, I don't want the other thing either, but <laughs> right. I don't know if I want that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some kind of deviled dog yeah. with a pitchfork or something. That's right. No, but yeah, so it's another one of those things that, you know, to even today, it's still radical or startling to believers. Sometimes you've grown up in church to hear that God's plan is to give you a new body and you're going to live on a redeemed earth, a restored creation. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And so it's one of the reasons I'm thankful for your book and glad for all of its provocative (laughs) <laughs> it's because there's so many things that we grow up hearing in church or that maybe we're accustomed to hearing at church, even if we didn't grow up in church, that are just a little off base. And so reading the Bible, missing the gospel helps us kind of put the corrective lenses on, the unshattered lenses on. The book is called Reading the Bible, Missing the Gospel, subtitle Recovering from shockingly common ways we get the Bible wrong in our everyday lives. The author is Ben Connolly. Ben, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Jared. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the good, robust conversation. Yeah. And and I appreciate it very much. The book is available wherever good books are sold. It's from Moody Publishers. As always, dear listener, if you enjoy the podcast, give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, Managing Editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.